So we're going to be in Genesis uh, chapter 4. We've got a lot to do tonight. We're going to do the whole chapter and then have communion. And so uh, have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we're going through, of course, we're going through the uh, uh, book of Genesis. And we started with the beginnings, and we did weeks before I brought I come up here and did all of the things about evolution and all of that so that we could get that out of the way, and that's fully available online now and is really worth listening to. But it lets me be freer to just teach what the Scriptures say, and uh, we have someone far better than me that uh, proved beyond doubt that evolution is not true. God created. But what we're going to see tonight are some firsts. And some of them aren't very good firsts, as a matter of fact. And so let's start right away in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. The very first verse reads this way. Adam made love to his wife Eve. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord... I have brought forth a man. Now, we're going to have to spend just a little bit of time on this because it's more of a paraphrase in any Bible that you have than it is actually the way it is in the Hebrew Scriptures. So here's why I, I want to look at it here. When it says Adam made love to his wife, what it actually says is, some of you already know this, but Adam knew his wife, Eve. So Adam, a man, knew his wife, a female, imagine having to even say that. Uh, he knew his wife. Some of your translations may say Adam was intimate with his wife. Now, the, the reason this is important is we're seeing a picture of marriage, and we're going to see it in a different way in a moment, right from the beginning here. <clears throat> and we see that marriage, the sexual relationship within marriage, when it says he knew his wife, uh, it's a kind of a neat thing. It means that they had a, a real relationship of knowledge about each other. And yes, it does talk about the sexual act and all of that. That's fine. Uh, but even when the ones that say intimacy, the, both of those things come together. Marriage, a Christian marriage, is between a man and a woman, and it's an intimate relationship that is to last all of their lives, if we, if, if we lived in a perfect world. That's the way God made it, though. And so when it says Adam knew his wife or had relations with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain, Cain, her first child. And then she said, now listen to this. It, it says in my translation, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. It actually doesn't say that. It just says, with the Lord, I brought forth a man, with the Lord. And you may say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, it's a, it's a really big deal because here she is, they're out of the garden now. We studied that last week. She saw that what was happening was full of promise because she was told, he was told that they were to multiply and all of that to fill the earth. And God was upset at what happened in the garden, but he still made, in a sense, that's the way she's seeing it, she made another man like Adam, who is her son and who is Cain. And the first thing that she'd be thinking 
If you were here last week, you already know the gospel in chapter 3 is there, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And so the Messiah is going to come, born of a woman. And so she has to be thinking, could this be the man mentioned in that exposition of the, of the gospel in Genesis last week? Genesis 3.15, God's talking to the serpent, which is Satan. And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, that was Eve in this case, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And we did quite a bit on that last week, so you could go back and listen to it and see how it clearly pictures the gospel. So here's what she has to be thinking. Could Cain be the one to crush the head of the serpent? The true hope for the world as Adam and Eve understood it. Now, we see here the fulfillment of the earlier command or promise, it was both, to be fruitful and multiply, and also the fulfillment of the promise to Eve that she would have children even though she disobeyed God's command and was now outside of Eden. This birth was a happy time full of great hope. Adam and Eve had been driven out of the garden because of their disobedience to God's command, but they had not given up on God. This is really important. They had not become bitter. Now, no doubt they had set up some form of worship. I don't believe it's too much to suppose that they had formed a sort of ritual or sacrifice to God on a regular basis, probably at harvest time. That is what we read about when both Cain and Abel are bringing their offspring. Uh, they, their offering, I'm sorry, Cain and Abel are bringing their offerings. Uh, they have been doing this for some time. That's the way, when you look at the whole picture here, this has been happening for some time. Now, here's a question. I think about these things all the time. How old do you think Cain and Abel were when the incident occurred? Well, some suggest that they were in their 30s. Actually, there is no way of knowing. They could have been 100 years old. No. Yes, just take a look at the ages. We'll see them as you go through Genesis of how long uh, people lived. But they were growing, these two men, Cain and then Abel, who's coming next, they were growing, productive young men working in their professions, worshiping year after year. Now, <clears throat> just trying to keep my place here. Adam and Eve also would have had other children during the period between Cain and Abel's birth and the story we are about to think through. So Cain and Abel understood who God was. They had observed their parents' faithfulness toward God, and they had read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Well, of course they didn't, but mom and dad, that wasn't written yet, mom and dad would have told them all about God and what happened and everything. So they had developed a relationship with one another and with their other brothers and sisters. Abel was a shepherd and Cain a farmer. Uh, both necessary tasks, one not superior to the other. So verse 2, later, I've been talking about both of them, but later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel. Abel's a word, a word that means vanity. Actually, as you work it through, as I tried to do some of the Hebrew work on this, uh, it actually 
it, it sort of means temporary, and we know what happened to Abel, and, um, but uh, it was a tragic event, which we'll look at in just a sec. We can probably assume Eve became pregnant very soon after they were put out of the garden. So within the first year, uh, they had a child named Cain, and it is reasonable to expect that Abel was born a year or so later. So just over two years has passed, and there are two children already, both of whom mom and dad would have great expectations for. So Abel kept flocks, verse 2, and Cain worked the soil. One is a farmer working the soil by the sweat of his brow now, and the other a shepherd. Our work should be seen as a calling from God, regardless of where it stands in the world's eyes. But now we see a distinct difference regarding how these brothers worshipped God. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, so some amount of time has gone by here. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Now, this sentence tells us a lot. In the course of time, suggests there was a specific time for the offering, probably harvest time, and that there was a prescribed place for the offering to be brought. Now, this is a picture of worship in this emerging community. The Hebrew of verse 3 suggests a casualness about Cain's offering, especially if we contrast what is written about Abel. It seems Cain just put together some of his produce, likely not his best, and brought that as the offering, fulfilling his religious duty. He, he was showing up for church but watching the clock so he could get on with his life. Now look at verse 4. And Abel, it says, also brought an offering. Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel, on Abel, and his offering. Now, the New Living Translation brings out the meaning of this verse clear. Here's how it reads. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift. Now notice that the text emphasizes the names Cain and Abel before even mentioning the offering. It is Cain and Abel God is most concerned about. How they are determines the acceptance of the offering. God doesn't really care how much we put in the boxes in the back. We talked about giving on Sunday. What he cares about is the temperature of our faith that caused us to put that specific amount of money in the box. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 reads this way. Three times we see this phrase. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. 
and by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Uh, This is something to really think about. What is important here is to realize that the legacy we leave for our children and others in the church may determine how those who knew us best respond. Our complete lives, in the end, preach a sermon that can't be corrected by us. So we need not be under great pressure in our Christian lives. We only need to obey what God commands. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, according to John the Apostle, if you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. And then the Apostle John later in writing his epistles, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 wrote, in fact, this is love for God. What is? To keep his commands. And... His commands are not burdensome. The reason they're not burdensome is due to the fact that we have the Holy Spirit enabling us to do as God wills in our lives. Again, Cain was just fulfilling his religious duties. He really just wanted to get back to work to further enrich himself and catch the football game at kickoff. Paraphrasing the Apostle Paul, I would put these words in his mouth. You all know, don't you? that your attitude behind your giving and your worship is what is important. It is clear that Abel brought his best. There's a feeling of delight on Abel's part. And you can even imagine Abel uh, saying or, uh, or thinking, God, here's my best for you out of thankfulness for all you have given me. Now, We would have nothing if it were not for God. We couldn't even breathe if God didn't sustain the universe for our benefit. Therefore, we're to give our best with a great attitude of joy, joy, not our leftovers. We looked at Malachi on the Sunday sermon. Here's some more Malachi, chapter 1, verse 8. When you bring wild animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. (laughs) Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Whereas Cain might have been thinking, God, here's some of the produce that was laying around. Now I need to get back to work. Sunday's over and need to get on with my life. So Cain, verse 5 still, was very angry. And his face was downcast. Remember that word, downcast. Since the book of Hebrews lets us know that Abel was a righteous man, we can be sure that he is enjoying the worship of giving. And if we could see Cain visibly see him at this time, we would know that he did not like the part of the service where they passed the plate. And furthermore, Cain is obviously very resentful, probably has been for some time. Resentful toward those who seem to rejoice in their opportunity to worship God with their giving. If we understand this story, we can feel Cain's contempt for Abel. 
It is so deep that even God will not be able to talk Cain out of his insane jealousy. So now look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face, there's that word again, downcast? This is the way a, a loving dad would reason with his angry little son or daughter. Uh, verse 7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Now, here's why I've mentioned the word downcast. The word accepted means to be lifted up, lifted up, lifted up by God. So here's the way to read it. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face so downcast? Look at yourself in the mirror. If you do what is right, will you not be lifted up? There's a contrast, obviously, a play on words between downcast and lifted up. So God is saying, Cain, Abel is simply trying to please me. If you'll do the same, you'll immediately discover life is much better and sin will not be your master. And notice God is not condemning Cain. This is very important. He is simply letting him know how much better life will be with a heart of thankfulness, with an attitude of thankfulness, an attitude of humility, an attitude of happiness and contentment. Galatians chapter 5 has a contrast that I seldom read, but I quote from this part of Galatians often, and most of you have memorized the part that I quote, though maybe this is a good place to do so. Listen to the contrast here. I've memorized the last part of the verse, but I've never been even slow, even no temptation to memorize the first part. Here it is. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, now we know this one, don't we, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. So uh, it's okay in our church to be kind. It's okay to be good, to be faithful. There's no law against that. The main point of the passage is that if we allow God's Holy Spirit to control our lives, we will increasingly experience the fruit of the Spirit, certainly the opposite of what is going on in Cain's life at this point. Now look at verse 7 again. There's, a little, there's, there's more to it. Cain, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Picture a lion just ready to jump on its prey. It desires to have you. Our, our sin nature. Our sin nature. Oh, by the way, that's the first time in the Bible the word sin comes up. First time. Sin. And our sin nature attracts those things that want to destroy our lives. Greed, jealousy, angry. And so he says, but if, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must, must rule over it. And Cain could have ruled over it. Notice 
God was not condemning Cain. He was warning Cain. Uh, uh, all Cain really had to do was change his attitude and become like his brother whom he was clearly jealous of. If you are jealous of other people's blessings, if you are an angry person, then sin is crouching at your door like a lion about to pounce on the prey. And if you don't stop it, it will stop you. James chapter 1, verse 5. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, if we were producing a movie of all of this, right now, the music would start to change. It would be sort of an ominous type music. You would know from the music that something's not quite right here. And then you would see Cain come up to his brother Abel. There might have been some others around too. But he says to Abel, hey, let's go out into the field together. And then it says, and while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I mean, that's just shocking. Just shocking. This is the first death of a human being in the Bible. The first premeditated murder, what we call murder one. And then we have this other scene. The Lord comes along. We've already seen this scene last week under a different circumstance. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Obviously he knew. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Or in other words, am I not my brother's keeper? Which is not true, by the way. We are to watch out for one another. When a hurricane or a fire occurs or some other tragedy, it becomes clear that many consider themselves their brother's keeper. There's always a mayor or police chief or some significant person who comes on TV and points out the resilience of the community to help one another and will rebuild. We see that every time. That's inbred in us as human beings. God made us that way. We are one another people. We, we fight against that we, we, like Cain fought against it. And, uh, but when the whole thing comes down on us, we often come together, and I could mention several situations just in the last couple of years that would be very familiar with everyone, and everybody comes together. That's the way we're supposed to live all the time. Nevertheless, last week, God asked a similar question. Do you remember it? Adam, where are you? Now, he knew where Adam was. They met in the evenings constantly every day. Did you eat of that tree? And Adam said, it's not my fault. It was a woman you gave me. And then God said to Eve, what have you done? She said, well, it was the serpent. I mean, this is a powerful picture of how our sin nature works if God's spirit is not in charge. Look in your Bibles again at verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done, Cain? What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. He already had covered his brother over, thought that he had gotten away with it. Now you are under a curse. 
and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. He's going to have to wander around <laughs> trying to find some way to have some food. He'll take up a new, uh, a, a different occupation, as we'll see a little bit later. But here, here's a terrible truth, a terrible truth. We are free to sin, the terrible truth. We are sadly free to disobey God. But we're not free to choose the results of our choices, the consequences of our sin. I seem to be talking about this a lot lately. The word for curse here means that Cain has been removed from the place of God's blessing. And I want to point out that the consequences of our sin most often cause undeserved consequences to those who are innocent. Abel did not deserve his untimely death. Imagine the angst of Adam and Eve and their other children. That's why Christianity is such a wonderful thing. There is ultimate justice. Abel has been vindicated. And by the way, he's still living. So, so don't think you can sin and that it won't hurt anyone else. Sin always hurts others. Now look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence and I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. This is what I call a totally self-centered complaint. Cain is not saying he's sorry he committed the murder. No. He is sorry he was caught and he is upset at his punishment. He was feeling fear and self-pity, but he was not feeling remorse at all. Not at all. You've gone a long ways down when you don't feel any remorse. I read a story this week that, that, uh, that I, re I very much remember the, the happening because it reminds me in a way of myself. Maybe you'll remember there were two young teenagers in a car and uh, they were driving along doing crazy things and they saw a man on a bicycle, just like I would be. And uh, I can tell, I watched the video. <laughs> it was awful. He was a retired police chief. And so I'm, I'm really interested in being an ex-police officer. And, uh, and they purposely ran him down, purposely. And he went over the top of the vehicle. The bike, the, the camera went onto the bike later. Uh, they, they put this on Facebook, by the way, or, or one of those things. And he went right over. He was killed probably instantly. The bicycle was completely destroyed, and they just took off. Well, they caught them, and so this past week they were in court. And I saw a thing that I get uh, talking about it. I thought, well, they had pictures and everything of them in the court. Uh, the first thing I noticed about the pictures is that they were young and smiling. And I read the article, and it said they even flipped off, if you know what that means, the parents, not the parents, the relatives, children, etc., of that police officer. 
retired police officer. And then in the interview, and I wish I had have copied it down, basically what the two young men said, they were kind of laughing, saying, hey, we're only 16 and whatever they 17, something like that. And, you know, <laughs> you don't think they're going to put us away, are you? <laughs> and then I, when I was reading this today, I thought that's exactly what Cain looks like. I was disgusted. I was, it, it was on my computer. If it had been in the real newspaper, I would have torn it all up. <laughs> what a terrible thing. That's what sin can do to you. And Cain was complaining that the punishment was too severe. Imagine. He murdered his brother. But the Lord said to him, now this is amazing. You can learn a lot about the character of God. That's why we need the Old Testament in the Old Testament. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. There's all kinds of things about sevens here. I'm not going to take the time for it. But then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Now, this should remind us right away of God's, of the gospel, of mercy instead of justice. We don't get justice. We get mercy. Cain did not deserve such mercy, not at all. We all deserve hell, and Jesus procured heaven for us rather than hell. Scripture doesn't tell us what Cain's mark is. I, I made a list, but I'm not going to read it. It's too silly. What is more important than to figure out what Cain's mark is, is to see here that the mark, whatever it is, symbolizes God's grace, a grace that will allow Cain to live without constant fear of vengeance enacted by Adam or one of the other sons. So the mark of Cain is grace, unmerited favor. God becomes Cain's protector, even though Cain was not even slightly interested in serving God. Yet even with God now being his protector, Cain still walks away from God's goodness. Now, verse 16 is like going back to verse 1. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod, by the way, means wandering. East means to go further from God. You can check that out through the Bible. Cain represents the world apart from God. Cain represents the world. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 for us. And part of the prayer is John 17, 15, just as before he went to the cross. My prayer is not that you take them out, that's us, take them, those of us who are believers. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So we're to be careful not to take the way of Cain as their lifestyle. That's why this whole story is here. The New Testament uh, Jude chapter 11, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Korah was the one that came against uh, Moses and, and his uh, brother Aaron, and Balaam's error was Balaam and Balak, where the king Balak said, I want you to curse the Israelites, and he kept refusing, and then God told him not to, but he was offered a lot of money, so he decided maybe he would, 
And uh, so he ended up being basically condemned by God because he wanted to do that. He was willing to take money to destroy his own people. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. You know, we're going to find, you'll find out it's going to get worse. I mean, uh, right now you look at what's happening. It's like going through this whole passage. It's, it's like, you know, Groundhog Day over and over again. Here we are. We've got people going out on the streets angry at the victims. And it doesn't make any sense at all. And uh, not angry at the ones that committed one of the worst atrocities we've had in our lifetime. The serpent deceived Eve, and then the war was on. We're in a spiritual battle. Enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the serpent won the first battle, and secular society was born. Cain refused to live by faith and was envious of those who did. Cain refused God's correction and chose to go his own way. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that anger can soon become murder. First it's in the heart and then like Cain. The real problem Cain had was hatred toward God. That was really the problem. Cain was the center of his own universe. No one has the ability to live life with any kind of joy or contentment when he or she is in charge of him or, or herself. And uh, so verse 17, I sort of misspoke a moment ago. Now it's like going back to verse 1. Verse 17. Cain made love to his wife. It says Cain knew his wife. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain, he had changed businesses now. He was in the building business, was then building a city. And he named it after his son, Enoch. Now, the Hebrew word for city here can describe any human settlement regardless of size. So don't think of it the way we think of a big city. The name Enoch means to initiate, to start. And it probably represents a new beginning, a new son, and now a new city. So we're witnessing the beginning of civilization. We see the incredible potential for invention and and culture that God has built into us. But how we handle this culture is everything, absolutely everything. Alan Ross talks about this in his uh, commentary, and these are some of his words, because the culture became, in that case, very wealthy. For their wealth and pomp are limited to this life, to this life. God in his grace allowed them to flourish so that they produced music, weapons, agricultural implements, and cities. They produced culture. It was their only recourse in a dying and painful world. But their advances could not conceal that they were living in defiance of God. Changing marriage, we'll see that in a minute. Killing, we've already seen that. Bragging, we'll see that in a minute. And exacting 
revenge. We will note that they developed a prosperous culture but couldn't manage their own lives. How many families or individuals become wealthy, purchasing everything one could wish for, only to see their own relationships spin out of control? It's one thing to have great material wealth, but it is something else to find peace or satisfaction in that wealth. In that wealth. Here's something I read just recently. See if this doesn't sound a little familiar. Our youth now loves luxuries. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders, and they love to chatter instead of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room, and they contradict their parents before company, gobble up their food, and tyrannize their teachers. Does that sound familiar? It's a quote from Socrates in 425 B.C. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It's, uh, uh, it's, we really need the Lord. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. If we won't learn from God's Word or even from history then we're doomed to repeat these things over and over again. So now verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujiel, and Mahujiel was the father of Methusiel, and Methusiel was the father of Lamech. Now listen to this. Lamech married two women. This is one named Ada and the other Zilla. So this is the first polygamous relationship. And the first to ignore, even Cain didn't ignore it, the meaning of marriage. Now, back in Genesis chapter 2, when we did that chapter, we learned about marriage. And in Genesis 2.24, it reads, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, a man and his wife, and the two are united into one. It doesn't talk just about us, not just about the sexual relationship. That's part of it. But they're one. Uh, they know each other. They are intimate with one another. They're part of one another. And when I do a marriage ceremony, there's some place in it almost every time where you say, and uh, whatever God has joined together, let no one separate. That's the ideal of marriage. That's what it's all about. One woman and one man, and that's it. And so here we have uh, Lamech marrying two women, and all you have to do is follow the, even Abraham got in trouble with women that way. Uh, look at what happens when there are multiple wives. Look at <laughs> King David. Uh, it's nothing but trouble because it's not God's design for how we're to live. So in verse 20 now, we've got Ada and Zillah. Verse 20, Ada gave birth to Jabal, he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, <coughs> who forged 
all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. Now, there's some things I, we want to see here. There's some really good things here. For instance, one of the things that is really great is where it tells, uh, verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. What I like about that is it demonstrates that God loves music. He gave him musical ability. They sang songs. It's so, it's, it, you know, the, the I love the time of worship with music in any church service I go to. It doesn't matter where it is. Here I just love our music. I go home on Sundays and watch Chuck Swindoll's church is the biggest organ in the world of its kind. And I know, because I'm old, I know the words of all the hymns they sing. And I sing the hymns out, and Valerie goes into another room during that time so she can study or something, and then comes to hear the sermon. But uh, it's so great. Music is such a wonderful thing. It's been a big part uh, of my life, too. But also, there's other things here that God gives us. We have a metal worker, metal worker. Uh, but look what we do. I could say a lot of things about music and won't bother, but there's a lot of bad things that can happen with music too, of course. A metal worker, uh, that's really something that they could form all kinds of things, but metal workers have now become uh, weapon makers. <laughs> Hamas, for instance, uh, I watched a little bit of a vignette on the news about how they make all of their bombs and their missiles. Uh, they have learned, they've got the skill of making them so they can send them into Israel to try to kill people. You see, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with all these abilities. God gives them. When the temple was being built, God gifted men and women in various ways for his glory. So Exodus 35 35 reads this way. The Lord has given them, talking about building the temple, the Lord is giving them special skills as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet thread on fine linen cloth, and weavers, and they excel as craftsmen and as designers. God loves beautiful things. He give these, gives these people the ability to build beautiful curtains and stuff for the Holy of Holies and all of these other things and to have great uh, pictures, uh, in a sense, on the outside of the temple area where you can come up and see these things that are carved into the temples. God loves that. He loves music. He lo he's made music for us to enjoy. He's made art for us to enjoy, beautiful buildings to enjoy, colors to enjoy. The abilities that we have been given are all gifts from God. The key is to not fall in love with the gift, but instead with the giver of the gifts. Now we have a shocking example of the progression of sin throughout culture. Cain gave in to sin. Lamech exalts in sin. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives. Now, this is a guy he, he, uh, you wouldn't want to be married to. This next part is actually Hebrew poetry. It's a song that you could sing. And so he's got his wives in front of them. The two of them are there. He's gathered them together. 
and probably a boisterous voice, a bragger-type individual. And uh, he says, Ada and Zillow, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. God has said he would avenge Cain seven times, but Lamech wants nothing to do with God. He doesn't need God's protection. Touch Lamech and you will be avenged to the uttermost. You see, culture without God will always turn Violent every time. You can't find anything in all of history, human history, where some cultures completely eliminated God and it's the most peaceful, wonderful place on earth. No, it always turns violent. It's well known, by the way, that the 20th century contained the greatest advances in technology and medical research of every kind. The inventions of the 20th century are astounding but it was also the most violent century in all of recorded human history. And it seems we are bent on changing that statistic already in the 21st century. It's because we've forgotten God. All over the world, God has been largely forgotten. Oh, I know there's great churches and there's things happening and we have missionaries in all kinds of countries that can tell you great stories about Muslims and Buddhists and all kinds of people becoming Christians. But overall, we have forgotten God in America, sadly, and around the world. Lamech and his civilized, lawless family are never heard of again. They disappear. You think, well, where'd they go? What happened? Too much water. It's called the flood. We'll study that eventually. <laughs> Verse 25, 26, last two verses. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel. Since Cain killed him, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. Now notice, Eve attributes Seth's birth to God's grace. You see it in the, you see, God has granted me, she said, another child. This is God's child. She would have considered Cain and then maybe Abel as the one God appointed to crush the head of the serpent. But now she believes it's Seth. And I think she was correct. He is in the line of the Messiah, according to Luke's gospel. Enosh means man, probably with the emphasis on our frailty, reminding us that we are dust people. We talked about that last week. We are temporary on this earth, but God's work never stops. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, and he said there are two cities formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. It's a picture of the gospel in a, in a real way. We either worship ourselves, that's Lamech, 
or we worship God. That's Seth. And then the last sentence, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, on Yahweh. On Yahweh. The idea here was that those who came through the line of Seth worshiped Yahweh. They had all the conveniences and modern inventions, but they are known for worship, not for prosperity. Worshippers enjoy the things God provides. Alan Ross writes, They were not caught up in the good life of the world, but were concerned with the things that were spiritual and eternal. We are to learn from Seth and his line and Cain and his line what to do and what not to do. Abel was a righteous man. God had clearly revealed to Abel the responsibility and privilege of worship. Adam and Eve knew that. They knew that. And they didn't have a sin nature. They knew that. Yet they rebelled against God's clear instruction. They were free to do God's will or to do their will. That's what I call a terrible freedom. Cain and Abel did have a sin nature, yet one disobeyed God and the other rebelled. The shocking thing about Cain was that he not only chose to rebel against God and kill his own brother, but even after God demonstrated amazing grace by being Cain's protector, Cain still freely chose to go his own godless way. Amazing. God sent Cain away with a promise to keep vengeance away from him. That's grace. So here we see that the society Cain inaugurated is moving away from God. Nevertheless, there is still hope for human culture, for sinful humanity. There's still hope. There's never not, never been any time since Genesis when there hasn't been hope. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter's speaking to some men that are pretty upset at him, and he lets them know right up front there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And the early church met together on Sunday, and when they did, that was their main day, the day after the Sabbath. When they did, they always had communion together. And they always remember what Jesus did on the cross. And so the reason we study chapters like Genesis chapter 4 is to realize how much we need the cross. And so tonight, we're going to take a few minutes to have communion and to remember the cost of the free salvation that God has given us. And so... <clears throat> if you're a Christian here tonight, you don't have to be a member of the church. Or anything. You're already a member of God's church. So if you're a Christian here tonight, we invite you to uh, do communion together with us. Communion is a picture of the good news about Jesus. When we take the, the, uh, the little wafers there, the bread, uh, it's a reminder that Jesus went to the cross. He didn't have to. He could have refused. He could have come down from the cross, but he didn't. And that reminds us that he gave his body. And uh, I remember I put this up recently on, on Facebook. I just said the only sin that Jesus ever had was our sin. He put our sin on himself. God put it on him. And he yelled out, oh, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the darkest time 
in all of creation. And then when we take the little bits of juice here together, it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, it's a picture of the cross. And so when, uh, when we're doing communion, we're to remember the cross, remember the cost, and remember that we've been given freedom to be spiritual men and women. We don't have to sin. A sin has been taken care of. We still have a sin nature, but we don't have to sin. We are able not to sin. And that's why we need one another, because none of us are perfect yet. We will be someday but, uh, and get rid of that sin nature. But we need one another. We need accountability. It's, we need to be accountable to God in our quiet times, all of that. But we need also to have others around us who can warn us if we're going in the wrong way and can be examples to us of what it means to go the right way. And so the way we do communion here is I'm going to have you stand in just a minute. And then there's one, two, is there another one in the back? Yeah, back here. There's three places you can go and get your elements and come back. And I think Pascal is going to come up and, uh, and do some music. And then we'll take communion and pray. So stand with me and I'll pray for you right now. Father, just thank you for the clear picture of sin, really, we saw. Cain and Abel and the difference and the freedom we have and what happens if we, if we use the freedom to worship you versus if we use it for our own self. And so help us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Help us to stand firm and let nothing move us, Father. Let us not even consider our lives, but consider what Jesus did for us so that we can take our lives and tell others and show others the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.